Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Get right to the romance and find the way to wow this Valentine's with 1-800-Flowers.com. From classic roses and bouquets to decadent chocolate-covered berries, gourmet treats, and more. Surprise your valentine with 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, get the 18-stem Enchanted Rose Medley for $39.99 or upgrade to 24 red roses for $10 more. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. Mirror man, mirror man. Good morning and welcome to a very, very special edition of the Arsenal Opinion Podcast. Today, we are joined by backroom legend, Colin Lewin. Colin, welcome to the Arsenal Opinion Podcast. We are very excited to have you on. I'll never be introduced as a legend ever again in my life. Thanks for that. you said right. Not too bad. I mean, let's be honest, the Lewin name in the world of physiotherapy, it's like you guys are like the physio mafia. You run that game. You know, you are cut from the cloth. Would you, would you, I mean, there's no one else, is there? There's no one in the physio game that just puts goosebumps on you like the Lewins. I don't know how we manage that. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe, uh, being friendly with a few commentators on Match of the Day, perhaps. I'm not really sure how that happens, but no, there's plenty of others. Don't make me name them. Well, we'll um, we always start these things with a, a little bit of a bio. Sometimes they get some things wrong, but I think that I have uh, confirmed that most of these uh, facts are true. So, uh, you joined Arsenal in uh, 1995 as an assistant physio. Uh, you worked under your cousin Gary Lewin, as uh, Johnny just mentioned. Also, an extremely uh, famous name in uh, in the world of physiotherapy. Uh, You took over the role of Head of Medical Services at Arsenal in 2008. You were part of the planning group that built out a £17 million performance centre. You also built out the first R&D arm in uh, Premier League football, maybe even world football. We can talk about that a little bit later. Yeah, not sure it's world football, but yeah. Close. Um, (laughs) uh, And you've co-authored articles and papers that that were published in, in journals. 
Uh, you now run the Lewin Clinic, which looks after the treatment and rehabilitation of athletes. And your website has some pretty famous people when it comes to testimonials. We've got Petter Cech, Aaron Ramsey, Faye White, David Beckham, Ian Wright, and my brother-in-law, Lee Meadows. And uh, <laughs> so did we get it's everything right there? easy on there. We'll talk about uh, we'll talk about my brother-in-law later. He uh, injured himself quite badly, but let me tell you, there is no man in the world uh, that is happier about a serious uh, injury than him because he's been working with uh, with your organisation and he's very happy with um, with what's going on. He's done very well. He's done very well. Awesome. Okay, let's uh, let's crack into the to the podcast. Um, so we want to talk about um, the job. At Arsenal, I think there is a lot of misconceptions about what falls under the remit of a head of medical services and how it all breaks out. Could you explain to the listeners like what goes into the role of um, of what you were doing at Arsenal? Um, it's a funny title. I mean, the role was really lead physiotherapist, and I don't know why it couldn't have stayed lead physiotherapist. Really, um, they were keen to head a head of medical, so you know it's just a tag, really. But you were looking after pretty much alongside the doc, really. I wouldn't say I line managed the doc at all. I think we worked very closely together. And underneath us were the physios. There were three other physios with the first team. There were massage therapists, um, nutritionists who ended up being under shed eventually. But you looked after basically anything medical right the way down. And with one eye on the academy as well, they could come to us with any clinical issues if they wanted to. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a fancy title, really, for lead physiotherapist, to be honest. Um, and I think the current head of medical services, it may have changed the name, Gary O'Driscoll, was the doc that I worked alongside there. And so we run it as a, a partnership, really. Great. And um, there's, uh, there's also that, you know, people like Shad Forsyth in the club, like, what's the difference between um, a head of medical services and a head of performance? And, like, do the roles overlap in any way? A little bit. I would say you work alongside them. The head of performance role is something that's crept into football probably in the last 10 years or so. Again, it's just a title. Um, it probably should be the head of performance staff because, you know, if Arsenal put in a poor performance, it probably isn't Shad's fault. But um, if, if you're head of performance, it, it does lend itself to that. Tag, but no, he'd be looking after fitness coaches. Often would have one eye on um, nutritionists and stuff like that, and looking down through the athletic development into the academy, and one eye on that as well. So there wasn't much of an overlap. We all knew who we line managed as such, and we all knew what our roles were. And when it's someone like Shared, who I got on so well with, um, yeah, I think you end up complementing each other in those roles. But he would be more on the, the fit player side of things. And we will be more on the injured player side of things, although there were some big grey areas, of course. So, so at the club, in you, you were there for a long time as well, uh, and you would have seen lots and di- lots of different changes in terms of who, if there was a, a kind of philosophical head with regards to your job of you know di- changes in approaches, um, changes in um, procedures that you might um, have implemented during the course of that, who would be responsible for? potentially changing course on ways that you approach approach your role? Would it be something coming from like the manager saying, could you incorporate this or would it all be down to you left on your own to um, kind of develop your role? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think we'd ever see it as being out on my own. I think obviously 
Arsenal ran the club um, in most different areas. And I would always look to him if I was going to change something huge. Obviously, I had to get his thoughts, opinion and go ahead. But I was quite lucky. The three physios working with me and the doc were all very experienced people. So Arsenal were very good in that. They always backed me to bring in quality experience. I never felt I had youngsters on board with me. I always felt I had good people around me. And I think that worked really well. So, no, if I had a big idea on changing an approach on something, I would get their opinions as well. Three physios, when I left, were Ben Ashworth, Jimmy Haycock, Andy Rolls, who were all been head of medicals at previous clubs. They knew what they were doing. And it was good to have their views, and it was important to me. And Gary O'Driscoll being there as well had also been a very experienced man. So, no, I never really thought I was on my own. If, if you wanted to go higher, then it would be arson. We always had great backing from Ivan Gazidis amongst others as well, so that was very helpful. But on a clinical side of things, medically, I had the three physios who were working with me and the people before them and the doc, really. So it was a, it worked very well. So, uh, like, you started with the club in 1995. There's been advancements in technology and, and thinking. Like, how did, uh, how did your role develop? as time went on, did you take on like more things? Did you outsource? Like how, uh, what does the, the role look like nowadays? Is it more advanced? Compared to 1995. Yeah. A lot. Um, so many changes. It's, it, you could do a podcast on that alone. Um, myself and Gary wrote a little article. I'll try and get it over to you. Um, comparing Arsenal in 1987 to Arsenal in 2017. So 30 years apart, same club, <clears throat> um, Lewin in charge in both of those years. Mm-hmm. Arsenal won the Littlewoods Cup in 87, I think, and we just won the FA Cup in 2017. And so we compared those two seasons to see what was different. The, the injury rates, the squad size, the number of games, the demographic of the players, and what else had changed around the club. Um, scanning, treatment of injuries, the facilities we had, the people we had in the staff. And it was just an unrecognisable club in just 30 years. So I'll send it over to you so you can have a read. Um, I mean, Gary probably spent most of his time putting intravenous lines into Tony Adams and Merson's arm to sober him up, right, after some big nights out. That was probably the summation of the job at that point, right? Yeah, well, I couldn't possibly comment on that one. <laughs> um, I'm sure the doctor would have done it for him. But we had, um, yeah, it, it was, it's changed enormously. So then me coming in 95, with just me and Gary as the physios, there was no academy system as such then. That came a few years later. Suddenly then you're setting up medical systems for academy systems, which was a big change. Then, as the scanning technology in the medical world changed around ultrasound, ultrasound scan use, MRI scans, opinions in London, specialists that we had available to us, that changed massively because that was another adjunct we could use to help us in diagnosis. Facilities massively changed. The training ground I joined in 95 compared to the training ground I left in 2018 was, again, unrecognisable quality of the pitches, the number of pitches, the, the swimming pool, the massive gyms. But I've said this before, it's all very well having these brilliant facilities. You have to have the people working in them. So the best facilities in the world, they haven't got the right people working in them, they're largely useless. 
And so the number of staff grew massively. I'm not saying that's a very good thing every time, but squad size of 28 that we had approximately 13 players, we had four physios, which was one to seven therapist to player ratio, which seemed about right. Some clubs have a few more, some clubs have a few less. Um, the full-time doctor role, which now seems to be essential in most clubs. When I look back to 95, we had a doctor popping in a couple of times a week wow. and doing the coughs and the colds and that sort of stuff. And so to have an experienced sports med doc in the background as well was massive and essential. So I don't know where to start. The, the, the demographic as well. When I joined Arsenal, I think we had four foreign players in the first team squad. I think we ended up at one stage having 17 different nationalities in that first team. So we could be here till seven o'clock, fellas, talking about mm. the, the differences and the changes. It, so, in, I, I, sorry, Pete, I was just going to say, so kind of around this issue and touching on that point, I'd, the question I'd initially said, in terms of one of the things we always hear as Arsenal fans was the impact that Arsene Wenger had when he came into the club. Um, his change in approaches and philosophies, not just you know on field tactics, but also off the field in terms of nutrition. Uh, you know, play, players' approach to their profession basically demanded different things. And what was his impact that you saw um, in a field that you'd you know previously worked in in physiotherapy? What what was Arsene Wenger's approach to physiotherapy, and how did that take shape with? Um, you know, how how your day-to-day work was going? Because Gary, obviously, your cousin would have been there a long time beforehand and he would have seen those changes. Did did Arsene Wenger take a, a real role in, in shaping the world of physiotherapy or or was it something that you had to push him into taking more seriously as you went? No, I don't think so. Obviously, I had a year or so with Bruce Rioch, um and then Arsene came in and I think he demanded high standards um, as with any manager, but I think he realised that the facility we had there wasn't lending itself particularly to top-end medical care, rehab care. Um, the lunches we were having at that time were a reasonable standard, but he wanted them to be a lot better than that, and he was right, of course. And also, because we were renting that ground from UCL, um, we had to be out of there on a Wednesday afternoon and couldn't always use it on a Sunday, if I remember rightly. But the Wednesday afternoon was a big thing, and he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that a club of that size were being kicked out of their own training ground on a Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> and if we wanted to rehab our players, it was you know back to the stadium or something like that. So I think he he demanded certain changes to the facility. As you know, it burned down soon after he started. I wouldn't ever accuse him of starting that. Fight. Yeah, <laughs> nothing to do with Arsenal. Extreme way of getting your own yeah. ideas. But... Yeah. There's a joke there about Arsenal, but I'll leave it. Cooking so, lasagna, I think. Yeah, so <laughs> it actually came at a very good time, really, because suddenly there we are in 1999, opening this unbelievable new facility, which lent itself to the idea that Arsenal had that we should be there on a Wednesday afternoon working with players and the the food should be of better quality. And why haven't we got a swimming pool? And why aren't the pitches better than that? Suddenly, they could be. And, OK, we'd already won the double the year before, which was amazing, really, considering we were working out of a hotel down the road. But I think that sort of thing was... I wouldn't say he revolutionised physiotherapy, to answer your question, but I think he did help us build facilities, approaches, and the quality of some of the stuff we were using, certainly. He backed us. 
So uh, you did help, you, you know, you were part of the, the group that oversaw the build of a performance centre at Arsenal. Like when you've gone from, you know, working, training, rehabbing out of hotels and, you know, borrowing facilities, like how do you go about spending £17 million? Is that is that like, a, did that come naturally? Did you have to teach yourself or go touring around the world to find out what a world-class facility looks like? No, they're two different things there. Um, so the, the training ground that was built and opened in 1999, uh, that was the £13 training ground that got built. Um, some would say largely off the back of the Nicholas and Elka sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the £17 million one you're talking about is the, the Player Performance Centre that opened in 2017-ish. Right. And that was a huge, largely academy-driven building that oh. the first team would use as well. And that's an unbelievable facility. Uh, so, yeah, that's a different building. So, yeah, we did. I had been around the world looking at the best facilities between 2010 and about 2015. I've been to America a few times, seen lots of baseball, basketball, ice hockey, uh, American football setups, some of the better college setups, Harvard and places like that, just to see what they were doing, why they were doing it. Um, I mean, some of the, the college setups over there are unbelievable the money available to them and the space they've got. So to see what they were doing, how they were doing it, basic stuff, the flooring, the lighting, the way they used the space is really important. So it was good to go around the world and see the mistakes people have made and speak openly to them about if you had another chance, what would you do differently? Um, That was myself, Gary O'Driscoll, the doctor, came on a couple of those trips and Shad Forsyth and Des Ryan were very influential as well. Uh, in fact, Des Ryan run that show, really. Des Ryan was the man who oversaw the whole setup of that, that player performance centre. We just helped him, really. So oh. so I was I was going to ask, um, when, you, you know, I'm thinking back to the 90s when Wenger first kind of come in. And, and in that general period, one of the things we used to always hear about was when players had key injuries and they would be sent off to America or sent off to insert country here to see a specialist in terms of their rehab and whatnot um and you hear it less these days um you you, you, it's far more something that seems to be done it it does occasionally happen but it's it it far more seems to be cared for in-house would first of all would you say that is an accurate uh kind of um assessment from what from what i've made of it and also (laughs) if that is the case is that just uk physios catching up with world-leading practices or is it a case you know and or getting the facilities available to them or is it something that it's just no longer necessary to do it in that way because the the base level of medical practitioners in this um in, in this league just has got to a standard where you just don't need to travel anymore yeah it's a tricky question um i think we're lucky that we're in london you know, which has got an unbelievable set of specialists, set of facilities and, you know, world leaders in certain fields. But because the world's getting smaller, I think, for example, if you have a nasty tear in your hamstring, you rupture your hamstring now, the three recognised best people in Europe would probably be in London, um, Finland and probably Spain or Germany. So... So these people get reputations about being the, the 
the recognised opinion for a tricky ruptured hamstring, one of them being in Finland. So it's odd that you're flying to Finland to get his opinion, but in something so important as that, why wouldn't you fly two hours to get an opinion from something uh, from someone who had seen lots of them rather than taking him to someone in London who may not be available, could be away on holiday. You know, you can't wait for him to come back. You can't wait two weeks. And so I think the world getting smaller, the first thing is to get a world-leading black book on any injury you get, where is the best person? So we had that. We've used Nick Van Dyke in Amsterdam a few times with some tricky ankles. It's 45 minutes flight. Why wouldn't we? Mm. That's not to say there's not great people in London. There are. We've got James Corden and Peter Rosenfeld in London. We had, we had a great black book. But the second part to that question would be, if you lads were playing in Italy, Tracy Milan, and in your first season you got a nasty injury, part of you would be thinking, can I go back to the UK to get an opinion from someone that I've used in the past where I had a really good outcome? And I think the players' confidence in who we're taking them to see has to be has to be top level. So if they're requesting a second opinion from a fellow they used to work with in Spain who did their ankle surgery five years ago, why wouldn't we at least talk about that? And so occasionally you're using people abroad as second opinions. It's not always first opinion. And when it's how, something big, go on. How, how do you how do you manage uh, that? Because you know everybody's had a deal with a doctor where you're like, I don't like what you've just told me, so I'm going to go somewhere else. Like when you easy. are, <clears throat> it's it's not easy. Um, but the good thing is the players recognise they're in London. The players recognised they were seeing good people. I think they did have a good level of trust in myself and the doc and the other physios. We weren't about to take them to someone who didn't didn't have vast experience in that particular field. However, when Andre Santos hurt his ankle, I forget the season, you'll be able to tell me 2012, 13 perhaps, and he says, I saw a fella in Brazil a few years ago when I hurt my ankle, I had a great outcome. You know, you do breathe a bit of a sigh. You do breathe a sigh of despair thinking, really, have we got to go to Brazil to get a second opinion on this? Um, Let's be honest, Andre Santos was well overweight. Never looked like he was up to it, quite frankly. You're not going to say it, Colin, but I will. Andre Santos was not Arsenal ready. That's probably why your ankle's done in, mate. Sorry, fan opinion there. Had to insert it. Thoughts of my own. You comment on that. You carry on. Uh, (laughs) We had to, obviously, we we had a chat with Arsene. We had a chat with his agent. You chat with Andre. And the doctor flew out to Brazil to get an opinion from a fella out there because... Andre Santos had to be completely confident what was about to happen. And you could argue we wasted those two days and a few thousand pounds. But this happened a fair bit now and then when players wanted second opinions. And it wasn't always easy. And sometimes you had to almost see it coming over the hill. If your German player got injured and it was a knee issue and you knew he had a previous knee issue, which was handled really well back in Germany, you had to see it coming over the hill. Sometimes you'd even suggest it yourself for you to suggest it to that player why don't we go back to Germany and see your man for a second opinion? You can see how that would build massive trust in that we're believing in them as well. Really wasn't easy. Um, I wouldn't say we got it right every time, but most of the time was good enough. Awesome. So we want to move on to uh, to our second area because there's going to be some some meaty topics in uh, in this one. We're going to talk about the club. You're not going to believe me. I've got to get my charger because it's about to run out. Stay there. Yeah, you, you, you jump in. 
Johnny, I'm going to have to tell you off. You cannot bring up that players are overweight. If oh, well, yeah. Um, sorry about that. I'm this not is sorry. the preamble that we're doing while um, Colin fetches his charger. Which is no, Andre Santos, always also known as Barry Santos, that geezer look, ne- never look fit. So I'm not having it. Oh, yeah, my ankle's hurting. Leave it out, Andre. Leave it out. I mean, maybe get yourself in shape, in shape to play a Premier League season and your ankle won't hurt. That's all I'm saying. You know, simple Colin's as that. Back. Let's, get, let's get professional. Cool. Let's get professional. <laughs> So we want to talk about uh, we wanted to talk about a club, um, and there are you know a, a few areas. So Arsenal had some really uh, challenging years when it came to injuries. When I started blogging um, early doors, um, you know, completely inexperienced blogger talking about the injury pileups that happened, and Arsene Wenger had a view, and the world of sports seemed to have a view. The annual Christmas pileup was a hot topic back in the day, um, and quite often fans would cite um, you as an issue, which was incorrect. Like, how difficult is it when you see stuff being written on the internet from ignorant fans? And we are ignorant. Um, you know, we're passionate, but we are ignorant. Like, how, how, do you, how do you deal with that internally? You've got to blame someone. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're going to blame someone. We, we always used to laugh about it because I've used an analogy a few times. You wouldn't blame the ambulance men for all those crashes on the M1. So it was a strange thing to get the blame for someone getting injured. It was a really odd thing to try and work out in our head. Hang on, why do they think we are the reason they're getting injured? Um, we play a part, don't get me wrong. We try and keep them strong. We try and do some injury prevention stuff. We do play a part. Of course we do. But we never really saw why we were getting the blame for it. If people weren't getting back from injury quick enough, I agree. We take a big part of the blame for that. And if people were getting back and breaking down within two games, I agree. Again, that's down to us. But that wasn't really happening that much. It was just number of injuries. I mean, there's so many things that contribute to number of injuries. As you'll see in this year, number of games is massive. One game a week, no Europe. You can see how it makes a difference to your injury numbers in one part. It's not the whole reason. Um, Recruitment is massive. If you're recruiting a load of 18 to 25-year-old players with no injury history, the likelihood is they're probably not going to get injured as much as the 27 to 32-year-olds you're recruiting. So it's not as simple as recruit young players, train them well. But that is a massive part of it. If you can recruit young players, train them well, get their match loading right, get their training load right, and there's no Europe, things are going to look better. And so what used to hurt us when we were being compared as an Arsenal team playing 58 to 60 games a year, being compared to a West Brom or a Stoke or a Wigan, <laughs> we were playing 40 games a year. Guess who's got more injuries? <laughs> we're playing 50% more games nearly. And so we, this whole league table that was set up for a few years on physioroom.com and a few other different websites did it. We fought for ages with that particular website. Why are you doing a league table? Why are we being judged with a team that's playing 50% less games than us? And even worse than that, with smaller squads, you you couldn't name Stokes 20th player at that time, but you knew Arsenal's 32nd player. So all of a sudden, it, it was comparing apples with London buses. And it just, it was difficult to read that. Although sometimes when we were getting criticised, it, it was right. 
So, so in terms of in terms of um, that period as well, um, and I think you kind of hinted at it there. But one thing that can skew the statistics, if you will, is um, players who, I guess, injury. I don't know if you even accept the term, but you know, injury prone. Essentially, someone who, I, whether it be a physiological issue or the way that they play the game, but they keep breaking down. I'm thinking Jack Wilshire straight away. You know. Um, there were instances around it with Abu Dhabi, which I'm sure we can get onto in a bit more detail. But he consistently breaking down, breaking down, breaking down. And that's obviously going to skew your numbers of injuries quite dramatically. Um, how? I guess my question would be, number one, how much of a role does it play, that injury proneness of a player, in a player just consistently breaking down? Or is it more... Um, you know, kind of accidental or innocuous in games, like people pick up different uh, injuries. And how much would you then feel, even if you were picking the transfer targets yourself, do you feel that picking players with clean injury profile should take kind of precedence over the targets that you're actually trying to sign in the first place? There's so many questions here. I might have to, you might have to revise me a little bit. I think the first bit is you talk about injury statistics. They weren't statistics at the time. They were rumours because there was no injury audit data being collected. I think the Premier League are about to start one this year, finally, which is great. Um, But there was no injury audit data being collected. So what you were reading about in these league tables were rumours. They were press rumours. Often it had us as having eight injuries. And I'm looking at the board thinking, well, they've got three. Who are those five there? Right, and someone had started a rumor that someone was ill, and someone had hurt his ankle the day before. And he'd appear on this website, and I think, well, he's not injured, he's training. I'll take a picture of him now. So it was hard to deal with what everyone thought were stats, but weren't. They were rumors. Um, the second part of that question was when players are getting injured again and again. People always used to talk about number of days missed this season. Look at the number of days Arsenal players have missed this season: three thousand one hundred or something like that. If two players are out for the whole season, suddenly you're 600 down already. Mm. At the bottom of the league, there's West Brom with 300 days missed the whole season. You think, no, that's not true. Because it was based on rumour. Now, some clubs are better at keeping their injuries in-house. Some clubs didn't ever talk about injuries. Look at Arsenal now. I think it's done very well. They never talk about them. Um, And so, yeah, that was difficult to deal with. You weren't dealing with stats. You were dealing with... Perhaps it was happening, perhaps it wasn't. Second part of the question, yes, some players are injury prone because we all know that the most, the biggest dictator of an injury is previous injury. So one of the biggest indicators, along with age, is if you've been previously injured, then you're more chance of getting another injury. So players were injury prone, but you couldn't take out trauma. You know, Eduardo was traumatic. Aaron Ramsey was traumatic. Abu Dhabi was traumatic way back. Yeah. So trauma, you could argue it happens at all clubs, and I agree with that. But trauma would um, be unavoidable. But repeated muscle injuries was something that used to really get us because it was clearly something not being done right by either us or the strength coaches or they were being trained wrong. Um, and so we all used to get together regularly because they're the ones that would hurt you, the repeated muscle injuries. Um, last part of your question when you're doing recruitment no obviously we would have an input as such but it was such a big team 
behind the scenes around the scouting network and the analysts and obviously the manager and the coaches who are picking these players, we'd always be asked to do a bit of research in the background to see what their injury records were. And it all comes down to risk analysis. Do you not sign a brilliant player because he's got a bit of an injury history versus do you sign a fairly inferior player just because he's never been injured in his life? It's a, it's a hard question and probably shouldn't involve the medical team too much. But when there was a really tricky one that did have a, a big injury history, then yeah, our opinion will be asked. Um, and medicals will never pass or fail. Medicals were a risk analysis that we would feed back to the, the board and the manager about our thoughts on what the risk analysis would be on signing that player. It was never pass or fail. Because we had some big ones, right? You know, Mark, like, you must have been involved in conversations around Mark Overmars, who clubs wouldn't touch. Uh, Carnu was... Uh, like... yeah, more Gary then. More Gary back then, probably. But yeah. The, the one for me is Kim Kallstrom, right? Um, I oh, mean, yeah, a guy with a broken back, right? That's a lot, lot of Arsenal fans in terms of when we're looking at the club, the situation and the judgment more. One of the things, we, we don't always have the information, but we're looking for guides on the club's judgment for our own confidence. And you can't sometimes get away from the headlines. At the end of the day, if you sign a player with a broken back, like fans are going to be like, what is going on? Um, I, I believe you were there when Kim Kallstrom was brought in. Was that right? And if so, yeah. can you talk us through that situation? Yeah, of course, it's been it's in the public domain. Um, Kim came for his medical, transfer deadline day. Um, in his medical, along with his scans, of course, so we'd scanned him. The scan came through that he had broken back. Always sounds very dramatic. <laughs> very dramatic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, three small fractures in his vertebra. And um, he said, yeah, I did, I did land heavily 10 days ago, training in the desert with uh, Spartak Moscow. And... So he said, well, this is going to be six weeks. You're going to be out six weeks. There's only 14 weeks left of the season. So this, we would guess this is likely off now. Um, so we went to Arsene and Arsene said, look, it's transfer deadline day. If we can sort out the payment for the next six weeks that we don't pay him as such, um, I'm willing to take a risk on him. And so we got him fit in six weeks. He contributed, in theory, to the last eight weeks. You can have your own views on that. But he was brilliant. <laughs> A brilliant rehabber, a lovely fella, um, and did everything he could to get back and play for Arsenal. So now the next day, when you wake up in the morning, you read that he's broken his back in the first day training, and the Arsenal medical team missed it on the medical. <laughs> you're thinking, no, 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 that's not what happened. It's not been near a pitch. Here's, here's the scan, fellas. Here's the conversations we had. Why are you talking like that? So again, someone leaked some ridiculous rumor that he'd done it on day one, and we missed it which was, again, complete rubbish, but you've got to deal with that constant poor information. Poor information. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you could argue whether King Kallstrom was worth it or not. That's not my job. But we said we could get him right in six weeks. We got him right in six weeks. He was available for the last eight weeks. Scored a penalty in the semi. He did, yeah. <laughs> so, um, t talking, uh, you know, you've obviously seen a lot of injuries at Arsenal. Um, I know there are some injuries that are slightly different to others and that um what was the toughest running injury that you had to deal with at arsenal what was the the one that would keep you up at night toughest running injury yeah like ongoing oh see yeah um well yeah the, the likes of aaron ramsey and eduardo happened 
we knew they were awful injuries. They got better, they played again. So while that was a nasty business, they, they rehabbed fairly routinely. Um, I suppose the obvious ones would be Jack um, and Abu. Yeah. They're, they're the ones that were frustrating and they never quite got back or always seemed to have a hiccup or a little setback or in one of their early return games, something else would happen. So they would probably be the main two that would, yeah, keep us up at night. And when you're dealing with that, I mean, you are, you, you're on the, you're on the shop floor um, dealing with these players. And I think sometimes as fans, we forget that they're not robots, they're humans and they want to be on the, on the pitch. Like the, is part of your role, like you're almost like a, a, a therapist. Like how do you deal with, you know, dealing with people that are pissed off all the time? Again, I think it's a team effort. I don't think it's just the physio. I think the doc plays a big part. Um, we had limited psychology input at that time. They would have played a part. Um, other players are obviously very important to them, their teammates. Um, the other physios working with them, massage therapists, hugely underrated at football clubs as being great sounding boards. Um, I think it's an element of, of trust, an element of honesty and, and keeping them well updated and educated on what's going on with them and why we think it's happening. I think to pretend you always get it right would be a bit naive and a bit stupid. I think honesty with these players and the coaches about what's going on and why it's happening I think is very important. Of course, they had down days. Both Abu and Jack and every injured player, every injured player has has down days, but you have to just keep it day by day. Give them targets, give them short-term targets, give them long-term targets. We always try to get them away to change of scenery every now and then. I think coming in and seeing your teammates going out to train every day can sometimes really get you down. So any long-term injury would shoot off for a rehab break elsewhere after a month or two and I think that was important to keep them motivated but yeah very difficult but I think as long as you're clear with them on what the goals are what the setbacks could be and there's an honesty and openness I think that there was always a fairly decent trust at least I hope there was there always seemed to be a fairly decent trust in us the team and the doctor who work with them. So um, you, you know, you mentioned a few names there, but um, the name Abu Diaby really kind of strikes me. Now, <clears throat> as a lot of Arsenal fans will feel, I certainly do, that, I mean, we had a few, don't get me wrong, Jack, Santi, a few of them, they hurt. But the Abu one, for me, because we were seemingly crying out for that Vieira replacement, and then that thug, I'm calling him a thug, Dan Smith, comes in and breaks his leg. And it just seemed like with Abu, his career just was so consistent. It was just stolen from him because of those consistent injuries. He put in one of the best midfield performances I've ever seen against Liverpool at Anfield. It was sensational. And so I, I'd imagine from your part, you know, this is, I guess, the first part to my question. You see moments like that and you you yourself are filled with glee that, you know, the, the work you've done has led to him coming back. And then that might be mirrored with the disappointment when he breaks down again. And if you could talk more specifically about Abu Dhabi's injuries and what actually kept going wrong with him. Because I'm guessing, obviously, his, his structural integrity from his broken ankle created issues on the, you know, that thing they always say about things balancing out. Your left leg gets weak, so then your right leg 
get stronger, but then that breaks down and then you left and it just bounces between it. Was that the case that was happening with Abu? Yeah, I mean, it was a nasty fracture, a fracture dislocation from that tackle. Um, so the ankle had to be fixed with pins and plates, um, lots of metal work, and then rehabbed. And again, this is in the public domain. I'm saying nothing new here. We never quite got the ankle range back. Um, the opposite to pointing your toe is bringing your foot up, basically, dorsiflexion, which you need when you're running. Right. We never quite got it back. It never got up to the same as the other side. It got to reasonable, but the other side was very good. He was an elite-level athlete who was, as you say, doing very well. And so that alteration is biomechanics. Led to other, other issues higher up his body. And those other issues weren't always massive. There'd be a four-week thigh strain, a three-week hamstring strain. He'd have a troublesome calf problem. Then he started to get some knee problems, which were a bit more significant. And it almost certainly all come from that change in biomechanics because we couldn't get the range back in that ankle. We had second surgery. He had removal of the metal work. And he was getting opinions. You know, we were taking him to anywhere that we could find that would give us an opinion. Um, lots of different people were seeing him, different physios at the club. We had an osteopath at the club who was heavily involved as well. And we always got him to reasonable. But I don't think we ever got him back to where he was. Um, and I think that was largely due to the fact that those alterations, his biomechanics were just too much for him to be, you know, to be at an elite level that Arsenal demanded for the training and the games. And so, yeah, it used to, yeah, it used to really get him down understandably and everyone else working with him. But if you look back at when he did contribute, it was the three games there, then four games there, then a couple of games there. And it was never, he never got in the groove to get himself up to the level of match sharpness. But we always knew that ankle was so stiff and we could never get it back. Everything was tried, believe me. So uh, sh shifting up a gear, um, you are head, head of medical services at a major club. The ultimate currency on the internet is transfer gossip. Uh, the emergence of ITKs was absolutely huge. But no one was a bigger ITK on transfers than you because you would always get the call for uh, mm -hmm. the, the much-vaunted uh, medical. Can you explain to us, like, how, how does that all work? Because I know that there's, you know, someone's always like, oh, medical has been booked um, at Colney, uh, you know, wh wherever. Can you tell us what the actual process is for a medical and how, how the things come into you? And do you get excited when you get that call in the summer? Yeah, it's not always a summer, is it? We've had many a January 31st um, sat in Arsenal's office with Dick Law, Ivan Gazidis, the doctor, and everyone else. And Yeah, it was. Uh, we often tried to get as much notice as possible because obviously you'd have to book scan slots, you'd have to plan different bits and pieces, you'd have to do a little bit of research yourself into their background. So sometimes it was dropped on us. Um, I remember after the Spurs game, Dick Law came in 2011. When did Mesut come? No, it wasn't 11. 13, right? 13 or 14. Yeah, so you're right, it was. So Dick Law came in after the Spurs game and just said, look, we're uh, signing Mesut Ozil tomorrow. And sometimes it was like, what, really? We've got 12 hours, 24 hours? So the doctor had to make arrangements to get out to Munich. Um, but sometimes we were given a couple of days' notice. 
And yeah, it was. You know, I'd always arrive early on transfer deadline day, so you get into the training ground really early, and you meet Dick Law, who was the the contracts fella. I'm sure you know who that is. And we'd walk across the car park over to get a cup of tea, and Dick would say what the day might hold and what the day might not hold. Sometimes it was rigid. Sometimes it was, we're definitely seeing that one today. Sometimes it was these two things could happen, but it depends if he goes on loan to here or they sell him. You know, quite a complicated network of things that had to fall into place for us to get a certain player. Sometimes it was, have a nice day, nothing's happening today. Um, so it was very, very varied. Um, that crazy day in 2011 when we, we signed four on the same day. I wouldn't want to repeat that, really. <laughs> but it was um, really varied. And, yeah, sometimes you got a bit of a heads up the day before, sometimes two days before. But, yeah, they were, they were exciting days. Eating a Caesar salad at 9 p.m. sat in Arsenal's office, <laughs> waiting to hear whether you're going to have to go and do some work somewhere. Nacho Monreal was done at 11.30 at the Emirates at night. I mean, little things like that that happened that were just a bit crazy, but you just knew it could happen late. You knew it could happen with awful notice, and sometimes you get four on the same day. <laughs> that, that We all remember that day. Were, were you literally, on that day, were you backing them up? Like, uh, I could see that one at two, that one's in at four, and like they passing each other in the hallway? A little bit. We did, we did four on the same day, actually. We didn't get to see Mikel in the end because it was done quite late. Um, but the three others we done that day per yeah. Chu Young Park and Yossi Benayoun, I think they all came in. They had scan slots. You had photographers waiting to take a picture with their shirt. And can we get a bit of lunch? And can we do that? And yeah, it was it was a mad day. And obviously the Mikel stuff in the evening was uh, just finished the day off nicely. But it was a uh, yeah, it wasn't ideal. Do, so, do you know? I was gonna. I was gonna say. Um, it's a little bit back to the question I uh, we, we were talking about before, but just in terms of because, and I think I think this is a good subject to kind of talk around anyway. And that is the mental side of injuries. Now, I have previously done a podcast with Jeremy Ali Adier for Arsenal, the Arsenal Nation one. Don't mind a little bit of cross promo uh, on here, um, and he talked about some of his injuries. Um, and he first of all spoke about the kind of the mental health side of it and how how you do get fatigued by the whole being injured for so long. And, um, you know, again, as kind of Pete hinted at, as fans, we don't always appreciate the mental health side of things when it comes to elite athletes and injuries that they might go through. And they have to go home to their wife and kids and deal with that. But also, I want to kind of cross into the fact of now, I remember explicitly, I always think about one player when I think of this. It's Louis Saha at Man United. And Alex Ferguson hinted at one point that he thought Louis Saha's injury issues were essentially in his head. He thought there were chronic issues that were now starting to become, oh, you know, oh, I can't because my knee hurts. Have you, have you found that in your experience where there are seemingly players where you can go completely down the rabbit hole with them and after a while you're like, I don't even know what... There's nothing here anymore. And you're telling me you're hurting, but I can't help you anymore. And you don't even have to name names, but are there players where it was seemingly just a, a mental issue rather than a, a physical one? Nothing springs to mind, which is a really disappointing answer for you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, different players had different mental strengths. You know, you, you, Some players found it harder 
especially when you're breaking into the team, uh, or poor run of form, especially goalkeepers, I would say. Whereas injury-wise, no, I wouldn't say I'd ever been in a position where I've said, I don't know what's wrong with you here, this is in your head. I don't think it's ever happened. But when it came to confidence and form and self-belief and stuff like that, yeah, again, until the psychologists of the world started coming into elite sport and football in more recent years, you relied on coaches, managers and physios, doctors to be very, very amateur psychologists and do their best to to talk this player around and to give them everything he needs to help him on the way. Obviously, teammates and everything else play a part in that and family. But... But no. I, I guess, I guess, Colin, in, in, in a specific example that maybe you have had is, say there's a player coming back from an injury, maybe a long-term injury, and, and you mentioned the word there, their confidence in testing out that hamstring or that knee. Um, and from your point, you, you were like, no, that has healed. Like, we can look at the scans and whatever, and that has healed. But you're seeing players that are a bit tentative, almost feeling like it still hurts because they expect it yeah. to. Did, did you find that? Yeah, I think often I get criticised on the bench when a player came back after a long-term injury, maybe an ankle injury, and the coaches and the manager will be saying that he's not putting his foot in, he's not putting his foot in. It's a very subjective view, obviously, but they may have had a point. So sometimes the rehab sessions on the pitch, um, which weren't always done by the physios, but you try and replicate some match situations, get some other bodies into that rehab situation to force them into a position where they might have to Feel the discomfort, get the confidence up. The first block tackle after a knee injury can sometimes be a bit daunting, but you get that into the rehab. I suppose a good example will be after Aaron's fracture. He healed really well, and he was sent on loan to Nottingham Forest, you remember? And he was only sent on loan to Nottingham Forest, really, apart from to get some game minutes, but to get the confidence up in the injury again, to get hit, to get tackled. And I think that time he had at Nottingham Forest, it might have only been a month or so, was invaluable, I think, in getting him minutes to get back to Arsenal. And yeah, I've done that now. Yeah. So, yeah, if you couldn't reproduce it in the rehab, certain players did often go on loan for a short-term period after after a long-term injury. But how do you talk a player around? It's not for me to say to a player, you're fine, crack on. I right. think they, they need to believe it. They need to see it in a real situation um, and experience it, hopefully, in an environment that doesn't matter too much. I'm not saying not in the forest anymore. <laughs> it was a uh, it suited both clubs, and I think it was important for Aaron to get that exposure after the fracture. Is that I mean, yeah. yeah, no, definitely, that was great. That was great. Sorry, Pete, did you have a? So yeah, to, to kind of to to close out the section on on your um, time at the club, I wanted to ask um, like what your what was your proudest moment. Um, in the role that you had, what was, uh, you know, you look back on and you're like, I, that felt really good or, you know, what outside of like football, just like day to day in, in, in your role, like what, 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 what do you leave and look back on and say, yeah, I got that right. Yeah, that's a good question. I didn't see that one. Um, <laughs> obviously the, the club winning was obviously the most important thing. So that's, that's an obvious answer. Every trophy, every, Every league win was just massive, you know, whatever small, small part we played in that. It was just good to see those players you've worked with for a length of time, all day, every day. 
achieve a victory. But specifically on the medical side of things, when a player got back, when a player got back from injury and, and contributed, Eduardo getting back and scoring that goal was great. Everyone played their part in his comeback. I think that was really good to see him come back. Such a lovely fella as well. So, yeah, when the difficult injuries came back, that was always massive. Um, Structure-wise and facilities-wise, I think the medical building at London Colony and the new player performance centre was something to look at and think, yeah, we played a part in that. That was a, a very good decision to put that there, a very good decision to include that in the in the building. Yeah, it's hard to name a proudest moment. I think probably the staff I brought in, really. That's a really corny answer, isn't it? But That's a nice one. The staff that I was, I played a part in bringing in, the doctor, um, our admin support we had there, Sophie, uh, the physios I was allowed to bring in were all very experienced people. Like I said before, it was good to be bringing them in and think, yeah, they were great choices, all of them. The massage therapist that is still there um, and might have played a small part in a few others as well, and including Des Ryan and stuff like that. And you think, yeah, that, that was that was partly my involvement in that. So, yeah, probably the staff, actually. And they are. There are a whole group of them that are still there on it. So it shows an awful lot, yeah, an awful lot of them are still there. And, yeah, so they should be. Speaking of someone who's at the club now, not so much that you would have brought in, but certainly would have worked with, Mikel Arteta. Let's um, move on. Next section. Take it away, Johnny. What a yeah, segue. Yeah, well, you know, it's smooth <laughs> like that. Um, Mikel obviously was at the club while you were there and you wouldn't know him personally. Um, so what did you make of him during his time when he was a player with you? Like, what, what did you make of him personally? Like, wh- what kind of character was he? And how do you think that... Uh, assessment of his kind of character will hold him instead as Arsenal manager during his current tenure? Very demanding. Um, <laughs> one of the things done well, one of the things done correctly um, would put us under pressure, even as a player, forget the manager part. Um, it'd make us think, make us feel like we were doing the right thing, You know, keep us on our toes and make Encourage a level of a standard, I think, in the medical side of things. Um, so I think we always knew that he would probably end up doing something along the coaching managerial side because he was a very serious man, um, but very disciplined as well, you know. He, he was never late. He was never mucking around. He was, he was always out on the pitch and doing things right, very professional, and very demanding of the medical team, like I say, the doctor, the coaches. I think, yeah, he was a, a very serious footballer, if you know what I mean. That makes him sound dull, doesn't it? But no, he was a... Uh, yeah, you knew he was going into something like that because he's one of those players that loves football. We've come across some that don't, you know. But he definitely loved it. And no, I think we all knew that he was heading that way. Even when nice. he left. Even when he left, I remember a few people saying to him, see you soon. <laughs> and that turned out to be okay. And that turned out right, didn't it? <laughs> um, we've, got, um, we've got a lot of young players coming through the ranks at the moment. And uh, I feel like they're quite robust compared to some of the players that came through in, in previous years. A, a club's making bigger efforts to ensure the, you know, the prop, proper coaching and all of the bits that you and your <laughs> teams do 
happen earlier on in the system? Like, is there a is there some magic behind a, a Smith Rowe and a Saka being able to handle the demand so young? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, obviously, the talent and the right coaching is massive. But I have to say that first. I think I could talk about medical and athletic development stuff, but you have to say ability and the right coaching is vitally important. But in around 2000, I'm going to get the year wrong again, 12-ish, um, there wasn't much being done in the way of athletic development at Arsenal. The lads were being coached down at Hayland. The 9s to 16s were getting great input from coaches in a real you know, reasonable quality building. But there was no one doing any athletic development, no one building them as athletes. And it always used to... I was just to wonder why that was the case because other sports were doing it. Um, and so I spoke with the doctor and some of the people at the club to say I thought it was something that was missing and we employed Des Ryan, which went a bit under the radar, but I think was a massively important uh, appointment because he set up from scratch a long-term athletic development programme for Arsenal's 9 to 16s employed coaches, employed talented people who understood long-term athletic development, not just fitness coaches, not just strength coaches. They understood development of adolescents and, and children. And I remember speaking to Des in the first year, and he says, the problem you've got with this, you've appointed me now, you put a bit of pressure on me. He said, but you're not going to see the best of, of this for five, seven years. Because... Boys that are 14, 15 now, okay, they're probably very good footballers, but I haven't had the chance to see them from 9, 10, 11 years old to get those early days in. And it turned out to be exactly right, almost to the day. And I'd been gone from Arsenal about six months. And I remember an Arsenal lineup had something like seven academy products in the starting lineup. And there's a few playing for their country. And it was a real mad achievement that all these kids have come through and we're all starting for Arsenal. And I rang Des just to say, look, you did say seven years. You know, you literally bang on seven years. Suddenly here come all these players. So, yeah, I think clubs are making an effort, but not all of them. And, again, you can you can make the gesture of saying we're going to improve our youngsters and we're going to do this and do that. But you have to bring the knowledge in and you have to bring a plan in for long-term athletic development pathways and Des was the perfect niche fit for that. And I know he's not there anymore, but uh, I think he did a great job, and I think it's uh, underestimated massively because it went a bit under the radar. Just on that point, you know, you don't have to go into the whole like elaborate stuff, but what, what are the examples of an, uh, an athletic um, programme for a nine-year-old? Are we talking like, you know, stretches and like kind of strength programmes, like conditioning on certain... On their legs, so they grow evenly. Yeah. Like it's um, a criterion-based progress. Basically, it's movement competency. Once you can move well, then we, then they'll start loading it. Once they can load it well, they'll move on from there. So it wasn't just based on what age you were; it was your competency. So right. you, might have, you might have had some nine-year-olds that move brilliantly and were loading to a level that a twelve-year-old couldn't do yet because his movement competency wasn't quite there. And so you, you could see it develop. You could see all these booklets that were given out to the kids and their parents, and you could see them buying into the idea. And you had Des was bringing in good people, of course. He brought in Paulie Roach and a few others who understood that pathway. And 
you could you could see there was something going into them, and the coaches bought into the idea that they needed this little bit of time every week to work on their movement competency before they were loaded, before they were then strengthened, and you could just see it. The, the players were getting stronger, and why that doesn't influence particularly the football side of things, it means they're going to be on the pitch for longer to be educated by the coaches rather than losing days and hours and months and weeks to, to injury. So the whole idea is to keep those youngsters on the pitch so they can get their coaching education and play football and oh, um, yeah. to, to limit limit the time that they missed. Great. That's uh, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, so like speaking of young players uh, coming through the ranks, like you're obviously a football fan. You've got a Thierry Omri shirt uh, behind your head. You, you know, you mentioned that you, you must stay in touch with a lot of people around Arsenal um, because, you know, your, your old staff are still there. Like, what do you make of the current um, iteration of Arsenal FC? Like, big changes this summer, um, new vision, uh, a lot younger. Like, how are you feeling about it as a, you know, sort of a day-to-day fan? No, I should be clear, by the way, it's not my bedroom. This is, I'm at the clinic. I haven't got <laughs> that shirt's not up in my house, so relax. Can I say bedroom? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 you didn't. You didn't. I'll make it clear. Oh, I'm at the clinic. I'm at the clinic. Um, I think it's. I think it's going well. Uh, you know, we always had the same thoughts when we were in it that people often got a bit excited when things were going well, and got a bit down when things weren't going too badly. You know, to try and stay on an even keel. Let's not get too excited when there's a few wins. Let's not get too upset if there's a couple of defeats. But that's the way of the world nowadays, isn't it? So to overreact on both ends, try and make it binary. They're either brilliant or they're rubbish, which obviously isn't the truth, is it? Um, but no, I think it's I think it's going the right way. But obviously as a medical person, we shouldn't be too, talking too much about football. We always had that same phrase, no medical opinions in football. No football opinions in medical, actually. <laughs> uh, you keep it to yourself. I'm not going to swerve that question, but no, I think it's... Uh, obviously, it's, it's looking better than it was recently but I think you have to give things time don't you I think I'm, I'm pleased that they're looking okay in the table at the moment and is there a player that has come into the club or is it who might have been at the club before that basically who's your favorite player right now who is encapsulating everything about Arsenal that has given you positive feels at the moment it's amazing I've been gone three years and I think I know less than half the players. It's amazing the turnaround in three years. The, the turnover is massive. So, obviously, I'm going to go and pick the ones that I know. I think um, Bukayo Saka, to see him come through, and Emil Smith-Rowe, to watch them come through from kids and to see them now flourishing playing for England, yeah. um, as well as Arsenal, of course. I think that's the most pleasing thing, I would say. Obviously, there's, I could name a few that I think are... I'm pleased they're doing well, but those two, partly because I, I knew them a bit when they were youngsters and it was good to see them come through that system I was talking about just now. So probably those two, I think, would be my favourites. Sounds good. Popular answer, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we're going to move on to the final section uh, because there's a little story. We want to talk about, uh, we want to talk about the clinic. So this, uh, this podcast came about because my brother-in-law, uh, good centre-back back in the day, uh, went through COVID, did not get out on the football pitch, um, probably drank a few too many beers, then went out and uh, blew out his knee or his ankle. I can't remember which one he's done. Um, 
And he got put with you, which for him was uh, an absolute dream. Every time I went back, he was raving about his injury and getting to uh, spend time in, in your facilities and, you know, spoke about how good you are. Um, can you tell us um, a little bit about what you're up to now? And like, you know, t- tell us about the clinic because, uh, you know, it seems like normal people can get access to you. Yeah, yeah. We set the clinic up um, just over two years ago, just had our second birthday. Congrats. So, yeah, when we were thinking about what to do next, there were a couple of things from the football world that weren't quite what we wanted. And myself and Gary got together and said, this is something we should set up. Probably should have done before, actually. Um, and we got some investment from three players. Petr Cech, Karen Ramsey and Meza Ozil were our investors here. Uh, so a long chat with Petr Cech one day about being on an advisory board for me. And he said, no, I'll invest in it. Let me, I want to invest in it. Petr being on board helped me secure Aaron. And I had lunch with Aaron on a holiday in Portugal when he was close by. And we got him on board with the help of his agent. So he was very happy to invest alongside Petr. And then Mesut's agent got in touch out of the blue and said he'd like to be involved as well. So it was really encouraging to have those three fellas in the background as investors and obviously to help us fund the place initially. So, yeah, it's in East London, Essex borders, um, in the Hainal area. Um, and, yeah, we've got four treatment rooms and a lovely big gym. And it's just good to see people from the, the weekend warriors, a bit like you two fellas. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm just uh, away at the moment in my thoughts, thinking about this Dragon's Den scenario with Petr Cech, Messer Ozil and Aaron Ramsey. And you walking in there being like, I'd like you to invest in the clinic. I, I'm loving that little uh, imag- you know, place in my imagination right now. I'd watch that Dragon's yeah, Den had, for sure. We had, an, we had an awful lot of help. David Dean helped us with the business plans. Uh, Dick Law was integral to us, helping us with other bits and pieces and... Um, writing the business plans for us and giving us some advice on different things. Because me and Gary, I wouldn't have said business was in our heads particularly. Our business mind was about that big. I mean, the learning curve has been enormous for us. But, yeah, to have those three behind us and to have the backing and then set it up, make some mistakes and get it going. And so, no, I mean, I'm enjoying it. It's different. I get Sundays off now. But um, it's very different. And I, I do miss an awful lot of the sports stuff. But it's... Uh, it's, it's enjoyable working with a whole range of people from elite athletes that come here down to people that want to turn up on a Sunday and play rugby. You know, it's a real range of people. You know, we're enjoying it. Are you seeing um, an uptick in injuries because of the, the pandemic? Um, you know, people didn't really look after themselves during the pandemic. And now that's manifesting in, in more injuries. Like, how, like, what has it been like on the amateur soccer scene or... A little bit, a little bit. Um, loads of people decided to take up running in the first lockdown because it was yeah. the uh, the thing you could do, wasn't it? And a lot of people that shouldn't have been running went running. Um, <laughs> so there were good that, that's me. <laughs> a good few injuries came from that. And so you know, a bit of advice, education, and a little bit of help for them, and that, that was sorted out. But then the, the contact sports returned, and we did see people going back into the same level of training and playing without the the condition, really. So the hockey, rugby, football, the cricket world all went back into it and probably didn't ramp it up as gently as they should have done because everyone was so excited to get back, weren't they? And so, yeah, we, we did see a, 
a fair few overuse injuries, a big upturn in the overuse injuries. Not as bad as I thought it was going to be, actually. But some sports got it reasonably well. But everyone turning up on a Sunday morning to play football again, a little bit excitable. Yeah, there were quite a few problems. But it, listen, we see a fair few elite athletes and they don't always get it right either. So... Is there like a common thread of advice that you're giving between like elite elite level pros and uh, and amateurs like getting back in or like are, are there some basics that you could give the listeners where it's like if you're thinking of picking it up or you're already in it like what's what's your sort of common thread of advice after so many years of working with the best of the best? I think a couple of things really. I think strength is massively underrated. I think people are going back in to play sports and not being strong enough. So just one or two basic strength sessions a week, whether you're playing hockey, football, even golf, you know, just a couple of strength sessions a week will certainly help decrease the injury likelihood for sure. And the other thing, when we're getting people back to training, as soon as we're discharging them saying, okay, you can get back to training now, in their heads they hear, oh, I can play Sunday. No, no, you're going back to training. Get going train a couple of times. Go and have a few training sessions first then play the game because the, 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 people seem to just cut that corner of training in the, in the non-elite level, of course. People just cut the corner of, yeah, I don't need to train. There's a game Sunday. I'll go and play in that. And so people keep making that mistake and we keep telling people, go and have a couple of training sessions first as the next hurdle. When you get through that, play part of a game. So, yeah, that, I tend to be saying that a fair bit. And how do how do we – how do we – I'm not planning on getting, getting injured, but um... – you know, people always want to work with the, you know, the best in the field. How do how do people get in touch with the the, the Lewin Clinic? To, is it a call? Is it through healthcare? Like, what's the what's the what's the process to get into work with uh, with you or your um, team? Probably best to go. With the website's the easiest thing. I would say www.lewinclinic.co.uk is probably the easiest way. Um, Instagram is at the Lewin Clinic. There's bits and pieces going on there. Uh, you can certainly get in touch via the messages on there. Um, there is a phone number. Well, I won't bore you with that. Website's easy. Enough. I'll put it. I'll put it on the Grove. It's all on there. There's, we'll cover all, that all up. It's all on the website. It's much easier that way. Website and Instagram are probably the best way. And yeah, we can generally see people the same week. Um, and there's myself, there's Gary here, and a really experienced physio called Laura, and a couple of massage therapists. And yeah. Look forward to seeing people come through the door if you happen to be based in the East London Essex area. Fantastic. We've got a lot of listeners and, uh, and readers that will be intrigued about that. Um, and f- final question, like you've seen a lot um, since 1995 at Arsenal. You've been through uh, a number of coaches, a number of new visions. Like not many people write a book about Arsenal. Like this, it's always third hand. If you've ever, now you're in the entrepreneurial uh, sphere of things, have you ever thought that you'd write a book or are you taking those secrets to the grave? A tell-all. You know what? I think if you're going to write a book, you, you've probably got to slag a few people off. <laughs> because that, that seems to be what sells. And I, just, I wouldn't want to do that. Not that there's that many people that deserve a slagging off. But I just I don't think... I think it'd be quite dull, actually. <laughs> I'm, not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure it's that good a book at all. Um, no, no one's ever asked. Uh, I'd probably want to keep it fairly polite. I don't want to write one of those books where you start slamming people. So I don't know. If someone was willing to help me, perhaps, but I think, uh, yeah, it'd be some big book. It might be a volume one, two, and three. You'd be bored. 
bored stiff of it. But you know, like Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There'd be, a few, there'd be a few different sections, that's for sure. But it's, uh, yeah, I, I need some help reminding me of some of the stories. Like, most of them have been written in Ray Parler's book, haven't they? So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, interesting that Arsene Wenger also took that same approach, and that's probably why the book wasn't as interesting as it could have been. He didn't really... He just wanted to talk about leadership and the good things. He didn't really go into any sort of uh, of depth, like I think some of the fans were hoping for. Yeah, and again, that's awesome, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Non-conflict and you know, just a nice fella who doesn't really want to be dropping bombs. So. But do, do you remember when he was in the job and he'd go, "Oh, one day I'm going to write a book. You wait and see." <laughs> well, you've written your book, Artem, and yeah. he threw no one under the bus, so yeah. you've not luckily, moved the needle. Luckily, I don't remember him saying that. But um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've got slams in the book, but I haven't read it yet. So nice. Well. um Colin, thank you so much for uh, giving so much time to the podcast. It's been a privilege to speak to you and, and hear all of the, the fantastic stories and insights. Um, yeah, Cheers, so that's that's the podcast. Thank you for joining. Cheers, fellas. All the best. Thanks very awesome. much, Colin. Cheers. See you later. Uh, great. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We will have all the details of the Lewin Clinic in the blog, so you can go and check it out there and get uh, uh, get your any of your injuries serviced by one of the best in the game. Uh, so on that note, ciao for now. Thank you. Hi, I'm comedian Johnny Cochran. Now, last year, my life was turned upside down when I became a first-time dad. Yeah, and I'm sitting there thinking, mm, this is a little bit crazy right now. How am I going to get through all of the challenges in front of me? One of the things I thought I'd do was set up a podcast talking to other fathers about their experiences. Fathers like Russell Kane. No one, no one's man is trying to suggest that what a man does is 1% of the ravages of a female's body being overtaken by its alien host. And Carl Donnelly. This is the admin bit where I'm sort of... You know, obsessing about prams and stuff like that. Oh, you got to get a good set of wheels. I bought a vintage uh, 1960s Marmet pram, which is so inconvenient. And it's never, we're only, it, it can't go any further than like the local park. And Doc Brown. We're here is complaining about money and how expensive it is to have kids and whatnot. They're like, well, you shouldn't have had us. <laughs> it's like, it's your fault. And it's like, I mean, I turn around and it costs me 300 quid. <laughs> Kids are so expensive. So you can listen to those guys and more in the How's Your Father podcast. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Will Coleman, founder and CEO of Alto, and I built Alto to put an end to rideshare horror stories. You're used to the total lack of consistency in rideshare. Maybe it's a smelly car or a driver that asks just one too many personal questions. Not anymore. With Alto, you know exactly what to expect every ride. Every Alto driver is a trained Alto employee, and every Alto vehicle is part of our private fleet of luxury SUVs. Say goodbye to rideshare horror stories. Download the Alto app today and use code FOUNDER for $10 off your first ride. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.